I've been uh, out for a few weeks, obviously, in the pulpit, and I'm eager to get back to one of the richest sections in all of Scripture. In Romans 9 through 11, it has already proven for us its uh, wealth and its riches in our time together. But before we did that, I wanted to take a Sunday to, if you will, go off topic for just a moment and to address something that has been uh, sort of chatter for a number of weeks on blogs and chat rooms and for many of you in personal conversations. It involves the comments that were made recently by a megachurch pastor, Andy Stanley. I don't normally take time to respond to comments by other pastors, and I'm certainly not into critiquing what goes on in other pulpits. In fact, I think in 16 years of ministry, I've never done that, but but so many of you have asked me questions about it or shared with me about conversations that you've had, and it just seemed like there was maybe something appropriate to bring some clarity to what has become a confusing situation for a lot of you, and in particular... Uh, these comments that have been made were made about churches and about Christians who follow what uh, Pastor Stanley calls a traditional approach to Christianity and to preaching. Particularly, he criticizes Christians who would claim that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That, according to Stanley, is at the heart of the problem. People who use phrases, as he goes on to say, like the Bible says, or Scripture teaches, or the Word of God commands, while not necessarily being incorrect, are basically irrelevant, ineffective in the modern day. And their message, while it might be right, obscures the fact that their methodology is all wrong. So in his messages recently, he directed toward those who are preaching and teaching in such a way, those who might focus on expounding the scripture for whatever reason, he he directed his messages at them and uh, some of you have specifically asked me what you what I thought about it or specifically uh, how they should how you should think about it you found yourselves in as I said conversations with friends and not really sure how to respond because there are so many of these provocative statements that were given by Stanley over a course of a number of weeks and at least for two reasons I thought it would be helpful for us to take a moment to consider the claims of Stanley and how they stack up to the truth many of you have Never heard of Andy Stanley. Others of you are familiar with him. He's the pastor of a local mega church, North Point Community Church here in the Atlanta area. He has built his ministry over the years largely on criticizing the way other churches do their ministry and the way Christians live out their lives. I haven't listened to a lot of his messages, maybe a dozen or so through the years, but the ones I've heard have that uh, consistent uh, strain throughout them of critiquing what Stanley considers traditional Christianity and traditional churches. Most of the people who fill his church are those who have had negative experiences in other churches and for whatever reason have found that his critiques resonate with them and have chosen therefore to uh, uh, align themselves and attend his church. You know, it's interesting in many ways, I 
I would affirm some of the things that Stanley has said through the years, even in his recent sermon series. I mean, where he is saying things that are critiquing hypocritical Christianity and unloving Christianity, and all those certainly, certainly, certainly I affirm those things. But the reality is they're not new. He didn't invent those kinds of observations. He uh, uses them and connects with people who are frustrated because they've been in unhealthy churches maybe much of their life or in unhealthy Christian relationships. But it's not his critiques so much that are problematic, it's his solutions to those critiques. His solutions for how best to engage an unbelieving world are, on one hand, woefully simplistic and Secondly, they're dangerously ill-informed, both biblically and historically. In fact, in this particular situation, Stanley appears to believe that he is proposing something unique, at least in the modern era unique, getting rid of the Bible in our public discourse in order that we might better reach a skeptical world. The problem is that others have tried that in the past. They've tried that approach, and the end result has been a hollowing out of Christianity, or ultimately the end has been rank liberalism. So I wanted to take just a few moments to address some of this, since the message has been addressed toward churches like ours. And... Out of a concern that I have that some people not get duped into the false hope that by getting rid of the Bible, we somehow are going to be more successful at reaching the loss. I want to reach the loss as much as anyone. I certainly applaud Stanley's desire to reach the loss. Nothing wrong with that. But as I said, it is his methodology that is woefully ill-informed. Now, many of the comments have come in a series of six sermons by Stanley entitled, Who Needs God? And he challenges his critics to listen to all of them before they criticize him. I have endeavored to do that. And in addition to that, he issued a five-page letter or or statement in Outreach Magazine responding to those who criticize him uh, regarding particularly his stance on the Bible. I've also taking the time to read through that. And there are still a number of problematic statements that he makes throughout his messages and in that article. And I don't have time, as you might imagine, to respond to all of them since there's so much material. But I wanted to point out maybe a couple of key ones and then take time to just look briefly at a passage of Scripture that I think gives us a better model for the church than what Stanley would propose for the church. First of all, there are a few glaring problems with Stanley's articulation of Christianity. At several points in his message, he makes the statement, or something similar to this statement, Christianity is not based on the Bible, the Bible is based on Christianity, Christianity is not based on the Bible. The Bible is based on Christianity. Now, therefore, if anyone has ever told you or if you have ever told someone that Jesus loves them, this you know for the Bible tells you so, then it may or may not comfort you that 
Andy Stanley has issued a public apology on your behalf. Uh, He didn't consult me before he did that, but I will take the opportunity to say that I don't want to issue such an apology. I might add, I'm not really sure who he's talking about because I'm not really sure that anyone has ever said that Christianity is based on the Bible as opposed to the events that are recorded in the Bible. It seems that Stanley has propped up a straw man as if to make it appear that he has some staunch argument. Christians have always believed that Christianity is based on the recorded events in the Bible, particularly the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, just to quote the Apostle Paul himself, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The Apostle Paul there clearly establishes the Christian faith in the historical realities of the life, the death, and the burial of Jesus Christ, but he also acknowledges that those who heard and believed the message believed it. Why? Not because they were personal witnesses to this, but because of the word that was preached to them. In other words, the grounding of the message is one thing, the means of the message is another. The means of that message is and always has been the words of Scripture, in this case, the words of the Apostle Paul. Very interestingly, it wasn't just Paul's testimony and Paul's words. He wasn't content even to use just that. He's insistent on establishing their belief by the method of using the Scripture. He says it a couple of times here, according to the Scripture, according to the Scripture. Now, these are Corinthian believers. That is to say, this is not Israel. This isn't Palestine. This isn't a group of people who grew up in Jewish society with sort of a predisposition to the Jewish Scriptures, They didn't come to the scripture with the same, uh, if you might say, inbred sense of authority uh, for the scripture that Paul might have had. Nevertheless, he insisted on presenting the gospel to them according to the scripture. Now, it's important that you understand that because Stanley and people like him want you to believe that the method that the first century church used was simply eyewitness testimony. In fact, he says this a number of times in his messages that the Bible did not exist for 300 years in the church. That for 300 years, the church which overcame the Roman Empire and the nails of the crosses of their crucifixion is the church that didn't even have the Bible. All they had was eyewitness testimony. In fact, he even challenges us at one point in the third message 
uh, near the end to, to imagine a scenario where someone from the future goes back to Peter and begins to talk to Peter and says to him, well, you should understand, you do know that all of these supposed facts about the Bible, the historical reality of the Bible, you know, the Exodus events and the creation of Adam and all those things, you do understand that all those things are false, right? And Peter supposedly in this imaginary conversation says, quote, I'm not a follower of Jesus because of the Jewish scriptures. I'm a follower of Jesus because he rose from the dead, end quote. And so Stanley says, quote, for the first 300 years, the debate centered on an event, not on a book, end quote. In other words, it wasn't about the scripture. It was all about eyewitness testimony and particularly eyewitness testimony of the resurrection. I don't know about others, but if I wanted to eavesdrop a little bit into the way that Peter or Paul would defend why they believed in the, re- in, in the resurrection of Christ or why they believed even in the gospel, I'm not going to listen to some imaginary conversation dreamed up in Andy Stanley's mind. I'm going to listen to the historical words of the Apostle Paul, which he recorded for us, in which he says his presentation of the gospel as he delivered it to the Corinthians was very much according to the Scripture, according to the Scripture. Or the historical words of Peter over in 2 Peter. Since we're discussing Peter, I thought it would be good to actually hear what he has to say. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 16 of that chapter, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So here's Peter speaking about being an eyewitness. And in fact, he's talking about an event that's recorded in the Gospels for us when he was an eyewitness on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was glorified in front of them and he was there to witness it and he was overwhelmed by it. He wanted to make tabernacles and just stay there because it was such an awesome experience. But what does he say? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from the Father, from God the Father, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, but no prophecy was, excuse me, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to listen to some imaginary conversation. I'm going to listen to the words of Peter himself. He says, I was an eyewitness, and guess what? You better listen to the scripture. Forget my eyewitness testimony because you have something better than my eyewitness testimony. You have the inspired word of God. 
that you'll do better to pay attention to. Here's the big issue, really, in Stanley's presentation of Christianity is he confuses ontology with epistemology. Now you say, I don't know what those are big words. I don't know what those things mean, right? (laughs) Uh, Well, let me break it down for you just a little bit. Ontology is the basis of how something exists. It's the discussion about how something exists. Epistemology is the discussion of how we know things. How do we know what we know? Epistemology doesn't discuss how we, uh, how we know something, excuse me, how something exists. It discussed how we know something exists. It isn't discussing whether something happened, it's discussing how we know something happened. And in the case of the resurrection, we know that Christianity is not based on the record of the events, it is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We understand that ontologically, and if you've been with us for some time, you know that we regularly emphasize here at Faith Community Church the importance of sharing the resurrection in our presentation of Jesus Christ. It is not a forgotten historical reality in what we talk about. If that is revolutionary to Stanley, I'm grateful that he has finally come around to realize the importance of the resurrection in the preaching of the gospel. That's a welcome thing. But the more critical thing in this whole discussion is how do you know about the resurrection? How do we know that something happened? How do we know that something exists? In this case, we only know because we read it in the Bible. And if we abandon the Bible, then we abandon our basis for knowing. Or let me put it to you another way. Stanley doesn't want you to say to people, Jesus loves you for the Bible tells you so. He wants you to say to people, Jesus loves you because I tell you so. Let me just tell you, that is a dangerous shift. In fact, I would suggest that that is at the root of the problem. That is at the heart of the problem on why Christianity is losing its influence in modern society. Is not because people are appealing to the Bible so much. It's because people are projecting their own personal opinions about what Christianity is or the church is or whatever it might be with no basis in Scripture. He wants us to abandon the Bible and then what are we left with? I told you so. Because your whole basis for knowing about Jesus is what you read and know in the scripture. And to only have I to- uh, uh, an I told you so Jesus is basically to have a powerless Jesus. In the post-Christian world that Stanley appears to be so exercised about, this is exactly the kind of subjective authority that exhaust people, that they reject. And it is confusing ontology and epistemology. Again, the only way we know that the apostles saw or believed anything or the only way we know the implications of what they saw or believe is by the word of God. That's why, it's precisely why, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4 
I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead. That's pretty, that's a solid right there. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. Who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience. A solemn mandate from the Apostle Paul. Not that we just share his personal story, but that we preach the inerrant word of God. And he's saying this because, not, or I should say, not because he thinks that everyone that we meet is just going to naturally share our view of the Bible and therefore it's going to be predisposed to accept what we already think about the Bible. That's not it at all. In fact, he goes on to tell Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So, so very contrary to what Stanley thinks, that those who listen to the Bible are only those who are predisposed to hear the Bible, Paul says it doesn't matter if they care about the authority of the Bible or not, you preach it anyway. Stanley just simply disagrees with the Apostle Paul. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm going with Paul on that one. In all of this, Stanley demonstrates a, a lack of any sense of the sufficiency of Scripture. And perhaps an overinflated view of the sufficiency of his own presentation. Now, to his credit, in his Outreach Magazine article, he gives a strong affirmation of inerrancy. He believes the Scripture is inerrant. He spends a lot of time saying that, but it's not the inerrancy that's the issue. It's the sufficiency that's the issue. Inerrancy, the teaching that Scripture is absolutely true in everything that it affirms, but there's another important aspect of Scripture that is central to the life of the Christian and of the church, and that is that it is sufficient, it is powerful in ways that no other word, no other book is powerful. As Hebrews says it, the Word of God is living and is active and is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Or staying right here in Timothy. If you're in 2 Timothy, you can look back to the previous chapter and Paul says this to Timothy in verse 14. As for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he follows that up in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There then you hear Paul's description not only of inspiration, but the implications of that. Since the scripture is breathed out by God, since it has the nature of inspiration that it does, it therefore is the only tool you have to present someone complete 
It is both inerrant and powerful. And it's Stanley's lack of trust in the power of Scripture that comes through in his messages, in fact, in his whole methodology. And you can hear it in these statements, these, this, this de- deficient view of Scripture. In one particular place, he, say, he, he says this, he writes, quote, appealing to post-Christian people on the basis of the authority of Scripture has essentially the same effect as a Muslim imam appealing to you on the basis of the authority of the Quran. You may or may not already know what it says, but it doesn't matter. The Quran doesn't carry any weight with you. You don't view the Quran as authoritative, end quote. Stanley reveals a lot in that statement. Because apparently in his theology or in his estimation, the Bible is no more powerful than the Quran. That the Bible is no longer living and active, it's not sharper than any two-edged sword, that it doesn't have any particular characteristic of being breathed out by God any other than, uh, any, other than, than any other holy book. Another way to say that is he may give some affirmation of the Bible's inerrancy on paper, he just doesn't trust its power. Or as David Prince tweeted, affirming inerrancy in principle while, while, while rejecting its sufficiency in practice is like saying your wife is perfect while having an affair. Well, I guess I'll stand if people want to critique me for simply believing that the Scripture is unique. For simply believing that it has a power that my words don't have. That it has a power that no other words have. This is precisely why we believe that the Bible is not simply our message, it is our method in everything we do. Because we don't trust in ourselves, we don't trust in the Quran, we don't trust in any other man-made book. We put our trust in God's breathed out word. In fact, Stanley suggests that if you loved lost people more, you would drop the whole idea of using the Bible in trying to tell them that Jesus loves them so. And if you would drop the Bible, or I should say if you don't drop the Bible, it is simply because you are more in love with your traditions than you are with lost people. But the reality is, it's because we love lost people that we so insist on using the Bible. Because we believe that it alone has the power to change them. There's a second problem with Stanley's message, and that is a number of false dichotomies. There are a number of these. One in particular might just serve as an example But he states several times a problem with traditional churches and traditional Christians who, he says, give faith-based answers to fact-based questions. That's a problem, he says. When you give faith-based answers to fact-based questions. Now, perhaps this is just an example of of what Stanley says he does sometimes, which is saying 
what he thinks skeptics are thinking. He makes a big point about this, that in his preaching, he will say things that he doesn't believe, but he thinks that other people believe it, and so he says it in order to draw some sort of connection with them. But the reality is that not only in his sermon, but in his clarifying article, he uses these words to articulate a problem with traditional Christianity, traditional churches. In other words, these aren't just the words of a skeptic. These are the words of Stanley in his critique of other churches. And at the center of it all is a false dichotomy. He is perpetuating this false dichotomy between faith and fact. I mean, let's be honest. We have endured far too many years of people trying to suggest to us that our faith somehow is incoherent with science. We spent far too many years of people trying to tell us that in order to embrace a fact-based world, we have to rid ourselves of a faith-based worldview. Well, I don't buy it. I actually believe that facts as Stanley says himself, are God's home field advantage. That there is no dichotomy between science and my faith when science is properly done. Or another way to say it, I don't believe there's a dichotomy between faith-based answers and fact-based answers. They're the same thing when the scripture is properly interpreted. Now perhaps that's what he Intended to say, perhaps he meant to say that churches give answers that are based on shallow or incorrect interpretation of the Bible, which therefore appear to be inconsistent with the facts of life or of science, but that's not what he says. He continues to perpetuate this false dichotomy between faith and fact. And Stanley criticizes churches who would therefore share faith-based answers to the real problems, the tough questions of life. And when he was taken, or I should say, when he took the opportunity to clarify his views, he didn't feel any need to clarify that. If indeed he believes that there are answers to the tough questions of life and of the universe where faith is consistent with fact, then he needs to clearly say such a thing. And then if he doesn't, then he needs to realize he's part of the problem. He's part of the problem. If he does believe that, he needs to clarify then why he criticizes churches for saying what he himself believes. Thirdly, and perhaps my biggest concern with Stanley's message and his Writing is simply the confusion of categories when it comes to methodology and preaching. He suggests that many people have stuck with a model of teaching and preaching for simply reasons of comfort. This is just what's comfortable to you. Or maybe tradition. And he says in his outreach article, you need to hit the pause button. And you need to seriously rethink things. 
You need to rethink your whole approach to talking about the scripture. Or as Stanley says it, you marry your mission, but you date your model. Meaning you marry your mission of reaching the lost, but the model of what you do it is something that comes and goes. And he says in his Outreach Magazine article, uh, you marry your mission, you date your model, your preaching and teaching model is just that, a model. It may be time to break up. We must rethink our approach, challenging times, call for changing approaches in order to accomplish our unchanging mission of making disciples. In short, he's calling for an abandonment of the preaching and teaching of the Bible from pulpits today. The premise is essentially because preaching the scriptures is an outdated model in a post-Christian world. In fact, in his rebuttal article, he goes on through the book of Acts trying to show at different places where Peter and Paul were preaching to people And in some cases, when they were preaching to Jews, they used the scripture. But in cases where they were preaching to Gentiles who didn't share their natural view of the scripture, their predisposition to the authority of scripture, they didn't use the scripture. And he would tell us that they didn't use the scripture, therefore, when they went outside to talk to people in the marketplace. And his point is that when we speak to people in the modern marketplace, who do not share our view of Scripture, we shouldn't blast them with a bunch of verses the way sermons did in churches where we grew up. If you grew up in church at all. I didn't, so not sure. Jared Wilson, I think, does a masterful job in Gospel Coalition of summarizing the issue here. And bringing much needed clarity to what Stanley is proposing, he writes, the point we agree on is that evangelistic conversations in coffee shops or wherever don't need to sound like sermons. But it's also this, the gathering of the saints for worship doesn't need to sound like a coffee shop conversation with a lost person. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the worship service is. Wilson's right. He's absolutely right. Stanley is suggesting that our Sunday morning pulpits, we break up with our methodology of preaching the scripture and replace it with some sort of coffee coffee shop talk. And underlying all that, not only is a woeful disregard for the sufficiency of scripture, it is a fundamental philosophy that shifts the great commission command For us to go and tell and replaces it with a modern marketing technique which tells people to come and see. And now Sunday morning is all about you bringing your friends to hear some choreographed pastor who is supposed to articulate this message in a particular way so as to move them in whatever way, to be more open to the gospel. In other words, instead of believing that Christians should be equipped and empowered to go out and be witnesses, salt and light throughout all the places where they go, Stanley believes that the primary means of evangelism is bringing them to your pastor. Bringing them to the Sunday morning or the Saturday night event or whatever, whenever they meet. And certainly, as I said, while I appreciate Stanley's desire to reach the lost, 
And I, I, I would even say I appreciate what he says in the way that we speak to unbelievers. You should not blast them with what sounds like a sermon. Because the medium of that evangelistic conversation will necessarily sound different than what takes place here on a Sunday morning. But I would turn around what he has said and challenge him to consider whether it's time for him to break up. Encourage him to reconsider the way he views the gathering of the local church on a Sunday morning or Saturday night or whenever they meet. In fact, Stanley's approach, I believe, has resulted in an increasingly shallow understanding of the Bible among so-called Christians. And this shallow understanding of the Bible has led to shallow living. And this shallow living has resulted in a generation who has associated the church with inconsistent and hypocritical lives. And it is these inconsistent and hypocritical lifestyles within the identifiable church which have become the biggest impediment to the gospel in our day. So the Stanley's method of church and of preaching are actually helping to produce the very problem that he says he's trying to address. The whole idea in and of itself could take up a series of sermons. We don't have time for that. But I want to just finish up our time this morning by looking very briefly at a model of the church that I think offers something much more robust and impactful than what Stanley proposes. And I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, going all the way back to the beginning, the second chapter of the book of Acts, but the first chapter of the church. This book, uh, this chapter records the birth of the church and gives us some incredible insight. You know, it's not uncommon for me to meet people who tell me that they, while they believe in God personally, they no longer believe in the church. They've lost their faith in the church as an institution. They don't trust the church. They don't trust the ministers of the church. They don't feel like it's the right place for them to worship God however they like to worship God. And so consequently, the church is falling on hard times. It's seeing less and less influence in society, decreasing numbers in its attendance as people see it less and less necessary in their spiritual journey. In some ways, I don't blame them. To see what the church has become as an institution today is pretty disturbing because churches have turned a blind eye to sin. They have been breeding grounds of hypocrisy. They install unqualified leadership They are places of corruption and greed, and they operate in so many ways as nothing more than an entertainment center. And people see through that. They see through that. But we need to emphasize to people that there's a big difference between rejecting these modern-day distortions of the church 
as they have experienced them and rejecting the church as the Lord builds it, as the Bible presents it. And perhaps the best place to get a vision of that is in Acts 2 and in verse 42 through the end of the chapter. This passage records a picture of the church in its infancy. It's unspotted, it's uncorrupted, it's innocent, if you will. It's not a continuation of something old. This isn't some group who sort of is just carrying on what they learned from their parents because they had always been brought up in church. This is brand new. This is fresh. This is pure. This is unblemished what the church is supposed to be. And it is born out of the preaching of the apostles and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and everything that took place on the day of Pentecost. And we're told that 3,000 people were powerfully converted on the first first day of the church. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and the church was born. And perhaps the most striking thing is that while they weren't copying anything, what they wound up doing looks incredibly like a traditional church. You have perhaps here this most wonderful picture of not only the church but its power down at the end of verse 47 almost as a place of emphasis at the very end of the chapter the very last of the verse there the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved this is a powerful church well what kind of church was it let me just read for you we can actually Look in verse 41 to get the context. So those who received the word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number. Several things that we could take note of very briefly. We have to go through this quick. Several things that marked the behavior or the characteristics of the church that the Lord was building here in the early days of the book of Acts. First of all, it was a believing church. It was a believing church. This is obviously what is the implication of verse 41, that those who received the word were baptized and were added to the church about 3,000. 3,000 believed, 3,000 were baptized, and then in verse 42, they devoted themselves to a whole number of behaviors within the life of the church. They devoted themselves. This wasn't just a one-time response. It wasn't just a crusade. 3,000 believed, 3,000 were baptized, 3,000 continued in the church. We're told today that those who hold crusades and mass evangelistic events, that if 25% of those who respond to a gospel invitation are still faithfully with you after one month, then you're doing well. Listen, this was no, this was no 25% retention ratio. Everyone who believed stayed and was devoted 
And this is what you have. You have, you might call a regenerate church membership. You have a church that is made up not of a whole bunch of people who just kind of are curious to come get entertained or whatever it might be. You have a whole bunch of people who were committed to the life of the church going through baptism, uh, belief and baptism and steadfastness and all these disciplines. But this is not what you see today in the typical evangelical church where a shallow gospel appeal is given and a shallow commitment is made and within a few months or maybe just a few years, they're nowhere to be found. Very typical of churches who follow Stanley's model. But what a refreshing, wonderful environment it must have been to be gathered together with 3,000 people who all believed. I mean, that's a powerful thing in someone's life and a powerful thing when someone is brought into that kind of environment. My first initial move towards the gospel was because I encountered Christians all together who believed. I had never seen such a thing. I was intrigued by it and it made me start wanting to read the Bible and the Lord used the scripture to change my heart. Secondly, the behavior of this church that the Lord builds is one of teaching. So you have believing, you have teaching. Luke tells us they were devoted particularly to, first and foremost, the teaching of the apostles. I say first and foremost because it's the first particular behavior that Luke gives. And I don't think it's by accident. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This wasn't an occasional thing. They devoted themselves to it. They didn't relegate it to the upper echelons of their Christian community. It wasn't for the few geeks who wanted to have a midweek study and, you know, go into the deep things of the Bible. This was what they all did when they gathered. The indication is the entire church was devoted to this. In other words, they dedicated what we would call the pulpit to the teaching of the apostles. And I don't think they were just sitting around rehashing the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection. They gathered primarily so that they could deepen themselves in the word of God. In fact, later on, Paul says that God gives to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the sake of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And if you're going to equip people, then the only tool that you have to do it is the Word of God because as we saw in 2 Timothy 3, the Word of God is inspired so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That's why whenever you get over to Acts chapter 6, the apostles tell the church, Can you find seven guys for us to kind of handle the day-to-day duties of distributing the food to all the houses of the widows so that we can devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word? This was a Word-centered church, centered on the teaching of the apostles. Thirdly, the behavior of this church was that it was loving. They devoted themselves to the Fellowship. It describes a whole host of things, some of them which are, are, are just spoken about in other places, edifying one another, even rebuking, reproving one another, exhorting one another, laboring together, uh, praying with one another, all those things. Here in this passage, it manifests itself 
in, first of all, breaking bread in one another's homes down in verse 46, uh, even the common sharing in verses 44 and 45 of their goods together. We've talked about this, how the, because ever, all these people on the day of Pentecost had come from all these nations all around the, the, the Mediterranean world, they had no churches to go back to. And so as an as a endeavor of discipleship, rather than sending them back to their places of residence, uh, the apostles decided that they should provide uh, an avenue for them to stay in Jerusalem and be discipled. And so people were selling pieces of property and bringing their goods and dis- distributing it so that they can provide for all these people who are now temporary residents in Jerusalem, all for the sake of discipleship. But really, it was a, a manifestation, an overflow of the loving fellowship that these people had with one another. We've got to move quickly. The church the Lord builds is a believing church, a teaching church, a loving church. It was a worshiping church. Luke mentions that they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. Now, this is different than the breaking of bread in homes that he talks about in verse 46. He uses the definite article, the breaking of bread, implying that this was the formal communion ceremony. This was the Lord's table. It was evidence that they were gathering for corporate and public worship. It was a, a, a staple in the life of the church that they would worship the Lord together like that. And further evidence down in verse 46, day by day they were attending the temple together. So they were in each other's homes, but they were also having public gatherings together. There are some people who somehow feel like that is some impediment to the life of the body, but the apostles Felt like that was essential. In fact, it was so essential, they didn't even want to do it one day a week. They did it every day. Because they knew that there's an aspect of the Christian life that is lost if you are content to pursue it alone as an individual. The church is a family, the church is a body. And God did not design any Christian to go through his Christian life apart from it. So they were were fellowshipping, they were worshiping together. Fifthly, we can add, they were praying. Luke's final particular descriptor here in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the prayers. Again, the definite article implies that this wasn't just personal prayer, this was corporate prayer, regular times of prayer together as the church. All of that sort of indicating what is at the heart of the church and is a good indicator to us about what is really at the heart of our church. Because prayer, among all these other things, is perhaps the best test of who we are as a church. Some people might say it's your evangelism. Some people might say it's your fellowship. Some people might say it's your pulpit, whatever it might be. But for me, I believe it's your prayer life. You want to find out where a church is with God and where, they, where a church is uh, spiritually, you find their prayer life. Or if they have a prayer room, you find their prayer room. You find their small group fellowships. And are they praying or are they just asking grace for a meal every now and then? Are they spending time together on their knees, on their face, humble before the Lord? Finally, the behavior of a church that the Lord is building is that it was a reaching church. 
It's interesting, verse 46, it ends. They were breaking bread in homes and they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So here they are, they're just enjoying life together. I mean, I get that. I mean, I, I love being with you. It's my favorite part of the week, coming and being with you, being with the family of God, the church of God. And so you just kind of, you just, just enjoy being with one another. It's palpable when the family of God comes together. Beautiful picture given here, one that I've experienced in my own life, but it didn't become, as some churches do, it didn't become this sort of uh, uh, inwardly focused cold and therefore unfriendly or aloof to outsiders. They didn't allow the joy that they experienced among themselves to turn them into some sort of isolated club or clique. This early church didn't allow their gladness and their fellowship to become a negative thing and make them insensitive to potential unbelievers around them. And because in verse 47, you see them reaching beyond their fellowship They were praising God and having favor with all the people. So just by being the church, they were having an impact on the community around them. And they were having an impact not by jettisoning the scripture and not by opening their fold to invite a bunch of unbelieving people into their fellowship and not by failing to equip the saints so that they continue to grow, and not by setting aside those uncomfortable times for unbelievers like praying, but by simply being Christians. Amongst Christians, they were having favor with all the people. Folks, sometimes people ask me, what is your your plan? What is your program for evangelism? You know what I tell them? The church. That's my plan. Because that's what has the biggest impact on a world around them. When the church is being the church, that is what impacts people around them. Now, I'm not against going out and sharing your faith, whether on the street or in home Bible studies or in whatever venue, counseling. I mean, we do all that, believe me. But the backbone of it all is the church. The church being the church. The way God designed it. It has an impact. It has an impact. I appreciate calls to re-examine all this stuff. I need to re-examine it. I need to think about it all the time. I need to constantly refine. We need to become better about what we do. But in rethinking all of that, I'm not going to set aside everything that the scripture so clearly calls us to to replace it with the latest fads with the biggest trends with whatever some mega church does or some Mormon church does or some Islamic group does I don't care how popular those movements become they grow in numbers But the power of God is in the word. It changes people. It doesn't just gather people. It changes them. So my hope for you is that you're encouraged in what we do. You're strengthened in your conviction about why we do what we do. You're equipped 
to be able to tell people what we do. And you return with all the zeal the Lord gives you to be a part of this great fellowship. I'm so grateful for Faith Community Church, for our elders, and for their commitment to these truths, to this methodology that they find in the pages of Scripture. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, this is our humble effort to examine ourselves. Our humble effort to look into the mirror, to ask ourselves, are we doing what we're doing because of our own devices and our own ingenuity? Or are we doing it because you are the head of the church? And all the joints and members receive what we receive as we follow along with your direction. Lord, that's our belief. This is not an organization. This is an organism. This is a body. And as a body, it is you who empower it to do what it does, to have the impact that it does. And Lord, we are unworthy vessels to that end. It would be fitting if you set us aside and never used us. But Lord, if you are so gracious, our desire is to be used by you. That you would humble us, that you would keep us broken, that you'd bring us to the place where we never set our trust in ourselves, but always yielding ourselves to you, that you might be all in all. Would you use Faith Community Church according to your purpose as we align ourselves according to Scripture? In Christ's name we pray, amen.